Hey everyone, uh, I know Maria just got done telling you why you're watching me on a screen instead of being here, so I won't rehash that except to say I'm really sad I can't be there. Uh, this is weird and also kind of semi-triggering to have such a similar setup as when we were doing this live stream during the pandemic, but it is what it is. Um, uh, although I will say also that if I'm negative as of watching this this morning, uh, about the time you're watching this, Sunday morning when I take a test, uh, that I will absolutely still be there outside, not inside, but outside for the Cornhole Tournament because uh, Danny decided he was going to make fun of me and tell me that he thought that I was just making some elaborate ruse up to avoid losing at Cornhole. And I will prove to you all that I am not afraid of losing at Cornhole. So uh, we are in the book of Esther this morning. We are jumping into the series that we're calling Faithful Presence in a World gone mad. And I am, man, I, I, I don't think, I'm trying to remember the last time I've been this excited to engage in and preach through a, a book of the Bible because Esther is really fun. It's so interesting. It has it all, right? There's a, there's a beautiful princess. There is a, a conniving villain. There is glamour, suspense, action, and drama. Like it's, it just, I was trying to figure out how to do a sermon intro on this that sounded like a uh, a movie trailer because that would be accurate, uh, but it, not very well done because I can't do that with my voice. But this Esther reads like a fairy tale, right? It's it's actually pretty amazing that Disney hasn't picked up Esther as one of its many princess movies so far. Um, but it's it's the story of a festival called Purim. Now, if you haven't heard of Purim. Uh, Esther is the, the origin story for this festival. It's a minor Jewish festival, that, but even though it's a minor festival in their kind of, uh, you know, the Jewish liturgical calendar, so to speak, it is a party. I mean, it is, it is one heck of a party. Um, if you're familiar with Mardi Gras or Carnival, uh, it has a very similar kind of atmosphere, which is why for the graphic that Danny came up with, uh, it, it, the, the word Esther in the background, that the gold and, and purple is actually the feathers from a carnival costume or headdress. And so it really has this kind of celebratory, high entertainment kind of atmosphere. Now, like I said, it, it reads like a fairy tale, but it's also surprisingly dark. It's Right, it, it, the, the story of Esther is about how God saves his people from being massacred and hunted and murdered, every man, woman, and child. But it's interesting because in, the, in and throughout all of this, it includes all of the kind of brutality and sensuality that you would expect in this because as Hebrew narrative, it's not actually trying to provide the moral of the story as you go. It trusts in a lot of ways that the reader engages with it a lot like you would a parable, right? It forces you to wrestle with it in light of all of scripture, and it doesn't give you easy answers. And so all that to say today, um, my hope is, and what we're going to do is I want to give you a big picture of why it's important to read Esther, to be familiar with it, for us to, to engage with it. And I actually encourage you um, to, to read Esther in its entirety after hearing uh, this sermon because uh, it's impossible to preach through Esther like kind of a chapter at a time. You actually have to kind of engage with it, with the characters all at once or with a theme th 
throughout as it is in throughout the entire book of Esther. But we're going to we're going to talk about the why, like why this book is relevant and so helpful for us today in a modern age, thousands of years removed. And this morning, I'm going to talk about two primary themes about why that's the case. The first is this idea that, that, that Esther is especially for those who feel like they live in a world gone mad. Okay. And the world gone mad that we see in Esther is, is it, we get a glimpse of it in chapter one, verses one through 19. But before we kind of jump into how Esther is a world gone mad, I want to talk about our world gone mad, right? I've been thinking a lot lately about how we're living in a, a, a liminal space, a, in a liminal time. If you're unfamiliar with the word liminal, it means basically in between. It's, it's kind of like an in between uh, what was, but not quite what is, right? It's, it's a, the word actually means threshold in a way. So you're kind of on the cusp. Uh, a liminal space would be something, architecturally speaking, like a, a hallway or a foyer or a foyer, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, a parking lot is a minute, well, as a liminal space. It's often a space that, that doesn't get a whole lot of attention when it comes to design or comfort because it's just, it's, it's on the way to something else. You're not actually, you're not actually, you know, sitting there for a long time, right? The, the ultimate liminal space is an airport, okay? I want you to think about the last time you were stuck for an extended period of time in an airport. Normally, when going through an airport, you're, you're not paying attention to a whole lot of details. The details that you need are normally in a column on a screen labeled either departure or arrival, right? Or, or change, or maybe the word cancel, if you're looking for that. Outside of that and the gate number, you're not noticing a whole lot of details until you get stuck there. And then you notice how absolutely not comfortable an airport as a liminal space is intended to be. It's because you're not supposed to spend a whole lot of time there. So why would you need to worry about making it, it comfortable? But that discomfort of the liminal space as a starting point, like it, like it kind of starts uncomfortable, means that every single f change that, that you experience in that liminal space that is an airport, for example, a flight delay, it ripples out like shockwaves through that space. Like... If, you're, if you've experienced a long flight delay or canceled flights, you know that when you're sitting at a, in, in a given, you know, in a terminal outside of a gate, uh, that before, if there's a, some chatter or announcement that hasn't come through the loudspeaker yet, when people know that there's a change, you start to see people start migrating already, right? Before it even comes through, you know, before it's even announced on a loudspeaker or like you just, you see the change ripple through people and it affects you rather quickly, right? I would say that only the most emotionally resistant uh, to despair can survive for long, uh, for longer than like a day in an airport, right? And I know that's a slight exaggeration, but in the moment, sure, it certainly feels that way. And in those moments, especially when you, when, when you have all the change happening, right? Everyone is, is jostling, uh, each other, they're throwing bows, they're clamoring to, to selfishly ensure that they have a seat on the plane, and you have a choice there, right? You have a choice in that moment. Do you, what are you willing to do to get one of those seats? Are you going to be anxious and coercive? Are you going to throw some bows yourself? Are you going to push a, 
you know, a grandma out of the way so that you can make sure and get a good place in line? Like, are you not anxious? What, what is that like? I ask that question and, and I ask it in that way because we're living in a liminal age, right? We're living in a world where everybody seems to have answered that question for, uh, you know, shoving the, 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 the six-year-old out of the way in order to get in line. Um, this, we are living in an age that is defined by being in between something and something else, right? This, this right here, the video, my not actually being there right now, this is a live illustration, right? COVID is liminal right now. It's we're we're like after the pandemic, but we're not we're not in this like endemic stage yet. Like they just announced, I think the CDC just announced that that um, that vaccines are probably going to happen on an annual basis, like the flu shot. That's endemic, like that. We're not there yet, but we're not in the other period yet. It's it's weird. We're not. It's in between. It's uncomfortable. It's very liminal. Culturally speaking, not just kind of biologically and pandemically, health-wise, uh, culturally, the pandemic also debunked this kind of progressive is progress is inevitable kind of optimism, right? I mean, if you if you're older than you know mid millennial age, you can remember a time in the especially in the '90s, but even the even in the early 2000s, even after 9-11, uh, ironically of which I'm only now realizing and remembering that today is the anniversary of, um, even, th even after that, there was still kind of a, an optimism that, that progress is inevitable. Like you can't stop it. We're not going back. We don't know what's coming next, but we, we're not going back to what was. And I don't know if I'm, uh, you know, that, that part of like we're not going back is probably still true, but I'm not so sure I'm as optimistic about the state of the world going forward, right? The pandemic catalyzed and brought to a head something that had been growing for a while that was this kind of years-long, maybe even decades-long delayed flight, except for the entire world. It is we are living between what was and what will be, and that's chaotic. The ripple effects that we're seeing kind of just, just go through entire countries are many. We, I mean, how many of you have used the language of feeling politically or socially or culturally homeless right now? How many of you lost friends or had family members seem to change overnight? Maybe you feel like you have changed overnight. And it's everyone in the midst of that is jockeying for power, grasping at straws, and trying desperately to find anchors within the midst of all of that. And to be honest, the church, Christians, we haven't been a whole lot better, sometimes worse. Persia and the Persian Empire in the time of Esther was in a re remarkably similar place. No, not technologically, and no, not culturally, but socially and politically, that was a the Persian Empire was a superpower whose whose power was very much in, in question, right? You might consider them at a, a liminal crossroads between past defeat and future victory. Uh, King Ahasuerus, I have actually no idea how to pronounce that name, so I hope I'm not butchering it, but King Ahasuerus is actually, uh, historians believe, King Xerxes. The, the name Ahasuerus is, is actually um, a pun, uh, and it sounds very much like uh, the, the Persian word headache, 
So in other words, they're kind of relabeling King Xerxes King Headache because, well, we're not really sure exactly why he would be a headache or why they would rename him in this way, but it is, uh, it is one of two reasons. One, it's because uh, there's a lot of drinking in the book of Esther, and hangovers were just as painful back then as they are now. Um, but the second reason, and it at least is generally almost certain, is that he was a royal pain in the you-know-what, right? He caused headaches. His father, uh, Darius, King Darius, was humiliated militarily by Greece. He was defeated miserably and sent packing back to Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, to the degree that uh, the his Greek historian Herodotus said that uh, Xerxes vowed not to rest until Athens burned. And so there's, there's some question. Is King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, or whatever his name is, King Headache, is King Headache going to pull his head out of his you-know-what? And is he going to be able to uh, restore the glory of the Persian Empire? And so that's what's happening when he throws these banquets in chapter 1. That's all the context leading up to this. And these and there's there's actually three banquets in chapter 1. It reads kind of like two, but if you pay close attention, you see that there's one that's kind of for the city in general that the, the city of Susa is, is throwing. And then there's a smaller one that's for the elites, right, in the palace. And then Queen Vashti gets her own kind of mini banquet off to the side. And the whole point of this uh, the reason for this is it's, it's kind of narrowing in on and zeroing in its focus on Queen Vashti, which who we're going to talk about next week. But the word banquet here is fascinating because it's it that the same word used for banquet is happens 22 times in the book of Esther. It's used 22 times. Hospitality or things that look and sound like hospitality, we're going to talk about that more later, um, is all over Esther. In fact, it would be I'd be hard-pressed to find another book in the Old Testament that is more about hospitality or more about banquets, right? But it's only 24 times in the entire rest of the Old Testament. So that just kind of tells you almost half of the occurrences of this word for banquet is in Esther alone. So it's a big deal, and it's part of the reason why the festival Purim is, is as oriented around feasting and eating, having good food and drink as it is. These banquets are six months long. That's a really, really long time. Um, in fact, it's so long that it says in chapter 1, verse 8, uh, that drinking was according to this edict, that there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all of the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. That sounds like a weird kind of you know, detail and footnote to include in the midst of the banquets, and there's a reason for that. The reason is because um, typically at a banquet, you would not leave anything uneaten or undrank. If you are a guest at, a, at, at something like this, you would not want to dishonor the host in that way. And that would be dishonorable because the cost of putting it on is extravagant. It's, it takes a lot of money to do something like this for just you know a short period of time, never mind six months. And so um, to... So in the midst of that, if it's, if it's that crazy, if it's this much of a banquet and a, a huge of a feast, then, then and six months long at that, the reason that is included in here is because Xerxes, is what, this is what it's communicating, is that Xerxes is so wealthy. 
He is so powerful that he doesn't even care if you leave money on the table. <laughs> that he's got more to spare, right? This is important because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, this is also probably, it is concurrent with this, that, that Xerxes was probably having his, his kind of war planning summit for what would eventually, what end up being the Battle of Thermopylae. So if you've seen the movie 300, uh, which is fantastic, by the way, um, the Battle of Thermopylae where Xerxes is just handedly defeated and slowed, um, well, he slowed first and then defeated later. Um, that battle happened sometime between the events of chapters two and three in Esther. So that gives you some further appreciation for the liminal period that this is happening in. But secondly, this is important because it's telling you something about both Xerxes' anxiety and the challenge he has ahead of him in a way. You see, the Persian Empire is huge, just absolutely massive. 127 provinces, it says. Is, is how big the empire was at this time. It stretched from Ethiopia to India all the way up into uh, bordering modern-day Russia. And Susa was in modern-day Iran. That much landmass and the effort it takes to keep an empire like that together and unified is, it is, just, it is astronomical. Okay? In the midst of that, things like these banquets and the, the six months' worth, it, lavish entertainment was very, very effective propaganda. Lavish entertainment was very effective propaganda. It was used to show strength and power, to impress the leaders and the government officials that were coming in from all across the empire. And then those leaders would then return home, both more loyal because, wow, we, we've been spoiled by the king, by the emperor. We get, to, we get to be a part of this thing that's bigger than ourselves. And that would inspire them to be more loyal. But at the same time, They'd also be more terrified. They'd be more terrified to rebel or to fail or to not contribute because this was an emperor who was so wealthy and so powerful. You don't have to eat everything that's put out on the table. You don't have to, to drink everything because you know what? There's more where that came from. You could consider this an implicit threat in a lot of ways. You could even consider uh, what, what Xerxes is doing as, a, as an ancient Near Eastern protection racket, you know, where they're going from business to business, um, asking for their, their security money to, for protection, right? Also in this time period, and this is where we start to get to understand what, what God's people were encountering in the midst of this, this also takes place between the books in the Old Testament of Ezra and Nehemiah. When Ezra, the, the events in Ezra are under, the, uh, under a king and an emperor named Cyrus, uh, Sirius. Uh, and this is before Darius. So this is two kings previous to Xerxes. And Nehemiah takes place afterward. And so Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son, is the emperor that Nehemiah is, is talking with. And so at this time, um, the, between these two periods, Israel, God's people, have been allowed to go back home and they've started rebuilding Jerusalem, but there are no there are no walls. Um, it's 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 constantly vulnerable to attack, and the temple has not been rebuilt either. So even though they're allowed to resettle, the 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 Jews at this time were extremely small, 
um, powerless. They were a minority within the Persian Empire. And Esther and the Jews that are in the story and the, the, you know, those local in the city of Susa and, and surrounding areas, these, these are the Jews who chose to stay behind, right? That means these are the Jews who probably would have been the, the ancient equivalent of cultural Christians, right? They're the ones who are really comfortable in the culture in which they live. They were probably profiting from it. It would have cost more for them personally to go back home to where the, the promised land was. And so they chose to stay behind in the land of their exile. They were at home in pagan Susa. They were also the people who the, the f- more faithful Jews would have looked down their nose at, who they would have disdained and thought very little of because they weren't, well, they weren't real Jews or real Christians, right? But they are the heroes of the story. <laughs> that's, that's the crazy thing about this, is, is they're the, the most uh, dismissed of, uh, you know, of God's people at that time, and they are the ones that God uses in the midst of this. Right? This is also, by the way, this is funny. This is why Martin Luther hated, and I mean, I mean hated the book of Esther. He hated the book of Esther. He said, uh, he says, I am so great an enemy to Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all. Which, if you know anything about Martin Luther and about how highly he saw God's word, it's pretty stunning for him to say, you know, I really wish God hadn't inspired this, as if he, like, knows better than God, right? And his reasoning is, and he doesn't get more specific than this, he says it has too many heathen unnaturalities, too many heathen unnaturalities. See, Luther didn't like Esther because Esther is not Luther. <laughs> Esther isn't even Daniel, who was willing to be thrown into the pit with, you know, the lions and whatever because they're because because he refused to not pray to the Most High God. They didn't Esther and Mordecai. They're not saying, "Here I stand; I can do no other." From a place of principle, they're not. Moral exemplars. They're not brilliant geniuses who figured it out. No, they, they, they drink the Kool-Aid. In a lot of ways, they compromise one small decision at a time. Esther herself, she, she doesn't know any different. She was born into exile. And Mordecai's advice to her as an orphan, we find out, we're going to talk about that next week, is to change her name and to hide who she is. Can you imagine, like, like, let's just, I just want to point out how, like, ridiculously countercultural that is right now. Like, if you're not standing up for something or against someone, you're not doing it right. If you don't have a position within 24 hours, if not 60 minutes of something significant happening, you're pilloried. And God uses their their wishy-washiness, if you will, in order to rescue his people. My whole point in all this is, is, is that there is this remarkable overlap between our two worlds. They're both liminal and chaotic, and it feels like there's a lot of anxiety saturating both of them. And that makes Esther a profound resource for us to benefit and learn from. Now, okay, that was a long one. I know the second one is, is much shorter. The second theme I want you to kind of 
incorporate into your lens as you're reading Esther is, is God's hidden hand. And even more specifically than that, actually, God's hidden providence. God's hidden providence. I say, the, I say hidden because something that makes the, the book of Esther completely and utterly unique is that no other book in Scripture, Esther alone, does not even mention God. Not one time. God's not mentioned at all, which is crazy, right? In fact, the only spiritual or religious thing that is mentioned in the book of Esther is when Esther fasts before intervening uh, with, with the king. And that really even isn't explicitly because fasting was a, was a practice at that time. So it, it implies prayer, but it's not actually even stating that, that Esther prayed, right? So is that an accident? Like, like where is God? <laughs> Why is he not mentioned? What is the purpose of that? What's going on? Well, to answer that question, it's helpful to know that there, whoever wrote Esther uses something called doublets. Uh, a doublet is a contrast between two things of a very extreme difference. Um, for example, Mordecai and Haman are contrasted. Mordecai is Esther's uncle, and Haman is the one who's trying to, to kill all of the Jews. Uh, there's a doublet between Vashti and a contrast between her and Esther. That's the one we're going to talk about this week. But it's very interesting that Xerxes, or um, uh, Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus, there's no explicit doublet there. It's because the implied contrast to that king is the king of kings. It's Yahweh. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit. In chapter 3, verse 7, which Maria read earlier, it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. They're casting lots to decide which month is it that we're going to kill all of the Jews. It's known already that this decision has been made. And so what, this, what, what's, what Haman is doing here is waging psychological warfare, right? It's kind of like um, playing Russian roulette every month where, uh, where the bullet in the chamber is mass genocide. Okay, that, the entire, in fact, th th that encapsulates the entire plot in a way. The entire plot is just nothing but a string of coincidences, like sheer happenstance, or seemingly, should have put that in air quotes, that if any one of them did not happen, then God's people would be just snuffed out. Even Xerxes himself, he's portrayed in Esther as this kind of incredibly indecisive, conflict-avoidant, self-obsessive, weak, and impulsive leader, such that when Haman asked permission to, and, and for permission and resources to massacre the Jews, his response is functionally, eh, sure, I guess, right? There's no decisiveness here. There's no sovereignty. There's no agency. It's even where the king is involved, it's basically implied or is, is presented as pure chance, pure odds. It's like rolling the dice. It's like casting lots. 
this is a stark contrast to Yahweh, right? God doesn't need to display his power with a lavish six-month feast, right? His kingdom is not so fragile that he needs to bribe or threaten his people. He acts both supernaturally across time and space and naturally in every time and space through both the extraordinary and the ordinary. He acts both in parting the Red Sea, as we saw, and we, you can read in Exodus, as well as arranging the circumstances that rescue his people against impossible odds and even in the midst of and through the smallest of quote-unquote coincidences. The whole point here, right, is that God's silence does not imply his absence. God's silence does not imply his absence. But actually, even more than that, in a way, God is spiritually liminal. God is spiritually liminal. Not that he's like wishy-washy himself, but in that he is in between everything. He is already, but not yet. He is Alpha and Omega at the same time. Every good coincidence and every unexpected crisis, God is behind. We can't see or predict what he's going to do, but we do know he will keep his promises. He leaves nothing to chance and no one can threaten his plans. One of the, uh, one of the Purim traditions I came across is... Um, I'm not sure how, how widely this is practiced or if it's still practiced, but um, to kind of hammer this point home uh, during Purim, uh, if it's not a rabbi, it would be a prominent man in the community, someone who is, who is respected and seen as, as significant and, and, and important. And that man would then dress up as Queen Vashti to start Purim. Oh, this is such a tasty joke. Uh, so yes, literally Purim starts with a drag queen, a literal queen, Queen Vashti. I wish I were there to hear your laughing um, and not your groaning. The whole point of that is to set the tone that no matter who it is, whether it's Haman or anybody else, anyone who thinks that they are important, pastors included, rabbis included, prominent community leaders, no one whether intentionally or accidentally, can stop Yahweh. And the idea that, that anyone could is laughable and ridiculous. It's actually a very similar principle to um, Halloween, right? Like part of the reason Halloween exists and part of the reason we dress up in costumes is it comes from a Christian tradition of, of dressing up in order to mock and satirize demonic spiritual influence because it's not a threat. Because God's bigger than all of that. That's, that's why we dress up for Halloween. <laughs> we should laugh at it. It deserves ridicule. The, the entire genre of Esther, by the way, is, is actually satire. Like, it's even in the name, Purim. Like, stop for a second. Like, did, did you catch or realize earlier when I was, was, you know, defining pure lots and Purim and, and making this connection? Like, that the festival about God's rescue... That, that is intended to celebrate and remember God's faithfulness is named after the instrument of the psychological warfare and terrorism waged against God's people. That's 
Like, that's insane. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you name it? Like, why wouldn't you name the festival God's Rescue? Um, you know, or, or the Esther Festival, right? It's got a, it even rolls off the tongue, the Esther Festival, right? Who does that? Like, that's just a weird thing to do, isn't it? Like, I, if only there was something even remotely similar to that. Oh, yeah, there actually is. Um, that should actually be very familiar, especially to Christians. The cross. The cross is that symbol. See, Luther, Luther got it all wrong. Esther is Christian scripture, if for no other reason than it is a story full of breadcrumbs, foreshadowing an even greater reversal. That in the same way that Purim is named after the lots cast to, to, to intimidate and shame and threaten and terrorize God's people. The cross was intended to be even greater, and the victory achieved from it, an even more beautiful and incredible doublet to contrast. Esther 9, verse 1, says, On this day the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. On the cross, Jesus didn't just turn the table. He turned the tables upside down. He didn't just barely snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. He ran straight into the jaws of defeat in order to shut them forever. Jesus wasn't rescued in the nick of time, specifically in order to rescue God's people for all time. And he didn't overpower or get the upper hand over his enemies. He extended his hand and welcomed to his enemies, to those who are most disdained, to all people. You see, Esther is a beautiful reminder that God is in, he is throughout, and he is among, and he is in between everything in history. Esther is a fantastical, fairy tale like story of God's faithfulness, even and especially when he's hard to see. And Esther is an encouraging example of how we can pursue a faithful presence in a liminal age. But more than all of that, Esther is prequel and preview of the very good news that Jesus has already accomplished the greatest rescue of all and that ultimately nothing can ever threaten God's people again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for the beauty and the majesty of, of this story in ways that if we, if we slow down and, and, and dwell in this and imbibe it and, and even, yes, feast on it, then it will only help us to celebrate what you accomplished on the, on the cross even more. There is so much in this tapestry to, to be in awe of. And so, Lord, thank you um, for the creativity of your love that you would give us a story, a tale like Esther, to see how your promise doesn't just get renewed and refreshed, but embodied in a new and different way, such that we can appreciate a whole nother facet of the gospel. So, Lord, thank you for these things. Be with us. 
in our liminal age. And we pray this in your name.